welcome to this very special episode of An American Journey. And I'm going to say at the outset, there is no Julian. So I'm in complete charge. Um, and because I'm in complete charge, I've invited one of my friends, Grant, to give us an American's view of the UK. Um, so, Grant, first and foremost, um, tell us a little bit about yourself and why you might be qualified to speak about th uh, things in the UK from an American's experience. Well, thank you for the invitation to join your podcast. Very exciting and lovely to, to be here. Uh, so my name is Grant Risden, and uh, I was born on the East Coast in New Jersey some years ago. Over my journey through America, I went to uh, university. Uh, I grew up in, in northern New Jersey in a very rural area. Then I moved slowly around the country, spending some time on Long Island for, for university, going to Dallas, Texas for graduate school, and then somewhere along the line, spending most of my uh, years in the Seattle, Washington area with a brief stint in the Midwest, which is, as many people like to joke, it's a nice place to be from. Um, so, <laughs> Okay. When did you first start coming to the UK? That's, that's, Let's see. I work in the biotech pharmaceutical industry, so I had done some travel to the UK, uh, conferences and things like that. But my visits to the UK started in earnest when my current wife, newly married, decided to take a short-term engagement with her company uh, working in a uh, shortage area in London. And that uh, was 10 years ago. The best way to visit with Mary was to come to her rather than she'd already visited America many years. So we decided I would spend a lot of my time traveling to see her. Okay. So, I, so the number of times you actually come in and out of the UK would be roughly more than... Fifty or yeah, certainly had residences um, in Muswell Hill, in Islington, over in Holland Park, and now we're in uh, we're near Portobello Road. So okay. been around the city a bit, moved in a little closer to work each time, and uh, so yeah, I have a good sense of the layout of the city and interesting, curious places. For instance, we learned that the song "We Are the Champions" from Queen was actually written in the basement of a pub on Notting Hill called The Champion. Right. So when you go down to you find the loo, there's a little plaque and a sign that says this is where it all happened. And, and that's exactly the sort of fact that we want to um, share with our listeners on this podcast. So oh. I'm going to jump straight into it, Grant, and say, so, so what is it do you like about, say, the, let's say London, London, yeah, what, what, what are the things that you think, well, that's really good? And, and, and by the way, if American visitors were planning to come over to the UK, these are the things you should see, in addition to the basement of the pub where we are, your, the champions was written. Well, I think... I did spend a lot of time in New York City when I was in my college years because being in Long Island, I think London is is a bit more cosmopolitan. You're, you're going to find a lot more different ethnicities and groups and cultural differences. Um, but yet people seem to all have sort of this base uh, understanding of this is how British culture works. You stand in queues. You're orderly about these things. You're not orderly about other things. You go to the pub and get really garrulous. Um, those kinds of uh, things that are really un kind of unique and special that stand out when you visit from the States your first time and, and always continue to be the case. So probably the one significant observation I have about uh, the British people that always strikes me 
being kind of a talkative American is that if you're walking down the street um, and you see someone and you say hello, they look at you. And if they're British, they look at you and think, okay, I need to cross the street. There's a crazy man trying to address me. Now, if we were in the pub, they would chat and yell and scream and hoot and holler. But outside on the sidewalk, you don't, <laughs> you don't engage. And, and that to me is really funny because people often will be looking directly at you as you're walking towards them. And then when you just acknowledge them, they, they, they kind of pull back. So it's quite. So I'm, I'm going to be a bit defensive. Grant. So I'm not that I'm from the North, but I'm from the Midlands, but from the Midlands going North, then it is quite common for people to speak to you without you speaking to them. So, um, so I think it's more of a, a London yeah, Southern thing. London thing. <clears throat> and, and I also think it comes because of course, when people do it, then you probably will be the loony that you're sitting next to on the bus who engages in the conversation. And so the default is to trick if, if, if I ignore everybody, That's I don't right. get the loony conversation because, yeah, and you see it in the tube, um, people will start to cycle up a conversation and everyone looks around and think, yes, you know, is this going to go the way I think it's going to go? <laughs> so so that, that's why we're, we're suspicious. Yeah. Okay. So you, you like queuing, okay? And you, uh, well, I don't say I like it, but I understand why it, why it works and how it works. So uh, just get along and, and go along. What about um, other things that Londoners do? So you, you mentioned the pub quite a lot. I mean, so is there a very significant difference between pubs in London and pubs in New York or Seattle? Um, yeah, I think so. I think that pubs in tend to be very sort of neighbor-oriented here, um, whereas I, I'm sure there's regulars who go to the bars in certain places. But overall, like in the U.S., a bar is kind of like a it's, – it's often more of a gathering place for people um, just to experience it as opposed to like this is where they go every week, if that makes any sense. Um, if it's a specific place in a neighborhood, perhaps you'll see the regular, a regular group of people. But here you get a sense that if you walk into a pub you haven't been into before, everyone looks to see who you are because everybody seems to have this sense that they already know everybody else. And they'll come out with their foods and they'll be like, here's your, you know, they know the, the people they're serving or customers by name and things like that, which is nice. It's a very nice okay. thing. Okay, okay. And, yeah. and and, and you probably haven't listened to previous episodes, but um, Julian, for some time, is constantly reviewing American restaurants and American food and um, sort of places to, to, to go to, particularly when you're traveling. What's your impression of sort of, don't say English restaurants, because I don't think we have English restaurants, but the, the food scene in the UK. So if you, if you have visited to London, uh, what advice yeah, would you give? So I think it's phenomenal. Um, it's really impressive the, the the breadth of cuisine you can you can get and um, at all levels as price points. Um, I mean, we've traveled to Mumbai. We've had you know great meals where our friends have said we're going to go to this really well known place and have this top meal. And then we've gotten we've gone to Indian restaurants here that are on par with things you know in India. So that's really exciting and uh, a very nice aspect. Um, and I, I think the other nice thing, often when you go to these, um, these sort of ethnic or culturally focused restaurants, a lot of, for instance, the Indian restaurants that we frequent are the, um, the Disham family of restaurants. There's about four or five now. And when you go, there's a large number of, of Indian expats, immigrants, whatever, um, there enjoying the family meal and eating there. <clears throat> 
their traditional, so that you get that sense of authenticity that's really nice too. Um, so that's really enjoyable for us. Um, I got to say that, you know, some of the takeaway you get here is much better than you'll ever find in the States on average. Um, and I think it's just partly because the city's so compact, you can have a very good, high quality restaurants doing takeaway and Grubhub or whoever is quickly bringing that to your house. And it's uh, not as easy to do that in, in, the, in the States, for instance, in Seattle and so forth. Okay. And so I have to ask you, do do you have a favorite, I'm going to say English dish, you know, and I'm give us a, throw things out there like sausage and mass or shepherd's pie or the, the English breakfast. So have you, have you got something you say, oh, that's what is quintessentially well, so I, English and I like it. There are a lot of quintessential English foods, none of which I find are all that tasty. So it's <laughs> typically the ethnic things that I find myself kind of leading to. But uh, I will say that, you know, um, there are a number of you know british baked goods scones and things like that that are that are that are unique and, and different than you get in the states and i know i would definitely encourage folks to give those a try yeah i can't think of any quintessential british food that i think boy that that's worth queuing for okay well, <laughs> sorry so, and, that, and i honestly think a plate of baked beans and a sausage with an egg and a half of burnt tomato is not a appealing meal it just doesn't okay. But, you know, that's a, I know that's a remnant of availability of food and things that, you know, et cetera, and the ease of making it, but uh, canned beans are just a, not a very popular okay. thing in the States. So, 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 so not a fan of the traditional English breakfast. What, no. what else are you not a fan? What, what are the things I will say, disappoint or you just don't, oh, you just don't get? Well, that I don't get. Mm. Mm. Before I leave, go on that topic, let me just say, I do think that there's nothing better than a good English bitter marmalade. So okay. marmalade on toast, you've got me every day. I could do okay, that all day, that's every good. day. So things oh. you don't like, things you don't things like. I, things I don't like. I will say that everyone says to me, it must be easy to get used to the weather in London. You're from Seattle. And the truth is it's very gray and it does rain in Seattle. In London, it's very gray and it soaks you to the bone. <laughs> And it's also colder, damper. Um, so in Seattle, you know, lived there some 20 plus years and never really owned a raincoat or an umbrella. Here, if you think it's going to rain and you go out without an umbrella, you're just crazy. You, you will be drenched to the bone. And that is one difference that I have not adjusted to is the, the amount of water we get here in the, in the winter months. And, and, and even worse news for you, Grant, because I mentioned earlier I'm, I'm from the Midlands, um, um, and I, I my very f sort of first serious job was in Manchester in Northwest England, um, and I moved down south because it's significantly drier and hotter. So if you think London's wet, go and spend some time in Glasgow or Manchester. Those uh -oh. places it rains all the time. All oh, my the time. son, my son has just accepted it. It has just been accepted into an MBA program in Manchester and is starting in September. So he likes London weather, though. So um, maybe he'll like Manchester weather even more. So, so Man Manchester is a bowl and the, it just hangs. There. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I mean, I like cricket. You can guarantee the test match in Manchester will have significant rain disruption. Thinking in terms of uh, those of our listeners who are planning a trip to come to London, Mm. Okay, uh, and let's say you know, it's a vacation of a, a week or whatever. You know, what what advice would you give them as a 
as, as, as a US citizen, things they should see and things they should absolutely avoid and not see. Uh, well, things that I think are just really special about the London area are um, some of the smaller, uh, less well-known museums uh, here. I, the one that comes to mind for me, and I've been many times, and I always drag people there, is the Soames House. Okay, yeah, yeah. And uh, for those listeners who don't know what it is, I believe he was the first royal architect of London, and he owned a three-story uh, townhouse, the kind you see everywhere in London, and you get to actually go in this person's house, and you see what these houses really look like, because now most of them have been converted to single flats, multiple flats, and you don't get the sense of the whole building. Yeah. And uh, he was quite an avid collector of everything. And there's one part of the house where you just think, how could he have gotten so many things on this shelves? There's a, there's a sarcophagus from Egypt. There's a broken piece of pottery from somewhere else that he's been and a bust from Greece. And it's fascinating. And then he has a, the other thing that's really fascinating about that um, museum is the, they call it the portrait room. And it's a room that's, about a small drawing room size with a very high ceiling, but it has a hundred. And so it's maybe 10 by 10 square, maybe eight by eight square. It's really not very big. It has 135 portraits in it. Gosh. And it's covered with, the way he did it was there's covered doors. Some go up, some open out. And on the insides are more pictures hung and more um, on the, on both sides of the doors. And when you go, they say, okay, so come back in 30 minutes and we're going to reveal the next layer. And you come back and if you didn't know, if you just walked in the first time, you had no way of knowing that there were other paintings on the, in that room, just the ones you could see because it's done so nicely. It's full of Turner's. So if you like Turner's art, you can see five or six of those up close. It's, it's pretty fantastic. Um, easy to get to, nice part of town. So. And that's what I like about what we're doing is here. I've not been there, so I definitely want to add to my list that oh, Julian, of course, is a big museum aficionado. So yeah. I, I will be double checking to see whether he knows the Soames Museum. Okay. Yeah. Any other similar types of museums that you would? Yeah. So um, Mary currently is living near Kensington High Street, and on the other side of Holland Park, which apparently is where Posh and Beck live. So you know, if you, if you need a real reason to go. Um, <laughs> The Beckhams live over in that area, but uh, there's a home called the Leighton House. Okay. It's near the Design Museum, so it's a couple minutes walk from the Design Museum, which is also a very nice little museum. I think it was the home of a person who was a wealthy landed gentry family that that he had a house in London, and he was a quote-unquote artist. And he also traveled the world, and he decorated this lip single his whole life, or I think if I recall right. Um, quite a large house, had a big studio. One of the rooms, he was really taken with Moroccan and uh, that style of, um, let's see, Moorish, we would say Moorish in the period, but, you know, Muslim architecture. So he basically converted this huge room. It's two stories tall. It has a, a Moorish fountain in the, in the center, tiles and the, that grid work that's so beautiful. And you just go in there and there's just like three chairs. You just sit. That's all he did. He went in there and contemplated. Okay. And it's a beautiful space. And then there's other parts of the house. And then the nice thing is the he has a large yard. And you're allowed to go out in the yard and have a picnic, bring your food. And have a, you can just spend the afternoon there. You don't have to leave to get food. They don't, as long as you eat it outside, they're fine with that. So on a nice afternoon like today, 
be a nice place to spend an afternoon. Anyway, so that, that one's a really neat one. And then if you're in that area, just down the street um, near the Disham restaurant um, on Kensington High Street, it's called Japan House. And it's, um, it's an extension of the Japanese uh, embassy, I believe, trying to promote Japanese culture. Yeah. Um, it's free. They always have interesting little exhibits. Everything's very Japanese focused. And sometimes it's just um, paper making in Japan. But it's just fascinating, you know, the things. And it changes every couple months. So it's always kind of different when you walk by. You think, oh, and you can be in and out of there in 20 minutes okay. if you want to be. You know, it's not a, it's not one of those museums where if you walk into the Tate, you know, you hardly can get out in an hour. Um, it's just, you know, much bigger commitment. So that's really nice too. And, and I'm assuming you've come across the National Trust, have you, while you've been here, Grant? Yes. Because if you like, if you like going around um, houses and, and looking at other people's houses, that is absolutely a membership to take out because they've got a whole series of them, you know, which are you know, really good to go and spend time and look at, yeah. and look at things. So uh, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. so they're the sort of must do anything else on the must do list for you that if you're American, so small museums, check out museums. Yeah. I think if you're fortunate enough and there's an open garden day, yeah, that you would want to do that. Now we haven't been able to actually see very many gardens, but the ones we have, you realize that at the turn of the century, when families were, you know, living uh, in these townhomes, entire families, as opposed to, you know, um, when they were broken into flats, they had a very, very high level quality of living. They had an urban home facing a busy street that opens into this oasis. And you realize, oh, you could easily live in London if you knew you had a little yard and a green space that was yeah. shared with like-minded people. So they're, they're quite spectacular. And, you know, some of them are very well cultivated and, and just beautiful. So you need to be, do a bit of research when you can actually get access to them because yeah. for a lot of them uh, you can't, but one of the things I always advise people, temptation in London, if you're going to see things is to go on the underground, actually, Centre of London isn't that big, so it's well worth walking from A to B and looking up and you see, and you'll see lots of these small courtyards, gardens that you can walk across. We're very fortunate, so that's yeah, definitely yeah. worth doing. And I would agree with that. We we tend to stay on the bus, except when we know we need to get more reliably across town to some specific place. Um, but the bus, and if you're lucky, and Mary and I still, after 10 years, rush up the seat up to the stairs to try to see if we can get the front window, you know, <laughs> because it's the best point of view. I mean, it's yeah. just really interesting from up there to see the city going by and all the stuff that goes on. Um, yeah. so. and, and, and I have to say, so because Julian would be disappointed if I didn't reference the trains, because I always talk about trains. Of course, if you go on the London like uh, Docklands Railway, you can sit at the front of the train and pretend you're driving it. Because it, oh, there is no driver on it, so that's, that's, that's a great view, and, and most of that's now I say high rise, but it's on it's built up, so you get the elevated view of London. So that's definitely right. one to do. Yeah, uh, things not to do. So you know, um, you know Boy, well, things, things in the sense that you think people if, they will normally come and do it, but at the end they'll end up a bit disappointed. Well, so what would you advise people not to spend their time doing? Yeah, so I think there's a couple. Um, sort of very touristy things that are that you find along the Thames walk. One of them is like the clink prison or something yeah. of that name. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. it turns out that it's 
it's not actually a historic site at all. It's just, yeah. But I think people th- see it and it sounds like it could be, and it's right there. Yeah. You don't want to queue for that. Um, yeah. Although just before that is a replica of the Golden Hind. Yeah. Which is worth seeing. That um, is but, but, but again, it is a replica. So yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah. Is it worthwhile people going around Buckingham Palace or, you know, looking at sort of Windsor Castle? They, I mean, the thing I love about when I go to the States and, and they, they hear me talking and they recognise clearly I'm not from the States, the, the very next question will be is, what do I think about, uh, you know, the royal family? Yeah. The States, they seem obsessed with it. And, I, you know, I, by the way, I'm not a royalist, so it's not even something I'm I'm not either, in. but, you know, you know, Mary very much is a royalist and she and Jackie went yeah. out to the Jubilee and the Trooping yeah. of the Colors, uh, yeah. and they got like right up on the gate and they took yeah. hundreds of photos. They thought it was spectacular. And they've stood out in the cold to watch the wedding. Um, was that Harry and Meghan's wedding that they saw or the other <laughs> William? And, you know, I can't keep it all straight. Um, so I, I find it fascinating from a sense that fascinating that other people are fascinated by it, I guess is my. And, and why do you think the American, I mean, and, 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 and as a, uh, as a sample of one, Mary. Why is Mary so fascinated by the royal family then? I mean, I because I don't get it. You know, I mean, uh, I don't either. I don't know. I'll have to ask her. I've never really gotten a good answer to that. I just think she, the history, and I think from a woman's perspective, you have the queen has been the longest ruling mar- monarch in in the world. She's traveled to more places than any monarch, and as a woman, I think that there's a lot of sort of. Um, appreciation for what she's accomplished as a woman in a, you know, okay. yeah. over a period when women were really not first-class citizens, right? She, she was queen, but, um, you know, still was a woman. And I think she faced a lot of those things down that, you know, so I think there's some respect there as well. Um, I would say that uh, Buckingham Palace is, you'd be better off walking through the park than you yeah. are to go to Buckingham Palace. It, it's a quick drive-by. You can walk by it, but I just go to Trafalgar Square. It's much more interesting. The Buckingham Palace is not particularly pretty. Yeah. Windsor was very interesting. We went out there, um, probably the coldest day in hell we could have imagined, and then we decided that we would do the long walk. So we're walking on the, it's called the long walk. You know, there's, you've seen it. Yeah. There's big statue at the end, and you think, well, I, that doesn't look that far away. There's a reason why it's well-named. And uh, it was very windy and everyone was cold. And my one son kept complaining about the cold, but we kept saying, well, if you closed, if you actually zippered your jacket, it would help. I'm not that cold. And this went on for like an hour. So it was a very long, long walk. Um, But it is fascinating when you get to the end, you think, wow, this is the biggest statue of a man on a horse. When you're at Windsor and you look, you think it doesn't, it can't, you don't realize how big it has to be to, to be seen that far away. So um, Windsor was much more interesting. We went to Vespers at Windsor. That was fantastic. The other thing that's worth doing, if you like old buildings and architecture, St. Paul's Cathedral is really lovely to go walk around and go in and, and go to Vespers. I'm not big for tours where people, you know, you have to follow a group. I just, just assume go sit in the church and listen or partake and, and try to be respectful of what it is, a church, not a tourist, you know, not a touring site. But London's yeah. a super walkable city. You can go anywhere between either the tube or the bus and then walk for blocks and blocks. We walk miles and miles typically on weekends, 10 miles a day. Um, yeah, well, we'll just walk over to here and next thing you know. So um, it's pretty flat, so you don't have to worry about hill climbing. No. So. 
Literally. Yeah, it's pretty easy. So, and of course, there's places along the way to stop all, you know, it's not like you're, uh, there's just neighborhood after neighborhood. So it's really interesting in that regard too. So a big plus for Americans coming to to London and, and the key advice, look at small museums, do lots of walking, you know, sort of, yeah. Well, and I also think my key advice for Americans coming to London would be to pay attention to what, to the value that infrastructure brings to to cities. Because if other than New York, a little bit of Chicago, there's very few cities that have any real transportation infrastructure. And American taxpayers are loath to, to have subways and bus systems that actually get used by everyone. They have this tendency to think, well, that's for the great unwashed. I'm I'm a wealthy, I'm wealthy enough to have my own personal car and I'll just stand in traffic for an hour and a half rather than, <laughs> than take a bus and be there in 20 minutes. And I think it's a lost opportunity. And I think um, it's one thing that always impressed me about the UK is, uh, and London in, in particular. You could survive here without a car quite quite readily, quite handily. Oh, yeah. It's a lot to be said for that. You know, the headache of a car uh, is, is sometimes lost on Americans. In, in in London, I mean, actually having a a, a car is a disadvantage. You, you you have to pay for the privilege of driving it down. It's bumper to bumper, you know. So yeah, yeah we are yeah. encouraged to. Uh, I, I agree with you with you though that it is the value of the infrastructure because if you come out of London and and um, again you say your son's going to Manchester, it's a while since I've been there, but people in Manchester love their cars. They've got good infrastructure. But people will go into, into so yeah, you see the commute. People will drive into town. Where London, you would be pointless trying to drive into town because it would take so long. Why is it then the Americans are so wedded to the car then? Uh, so why why don't I mean because you've got reasonable sized cities? So it, well, you, you know, got to remember like that gas is even even though gas is at an all time high in the U.S., it's still less than it is in in the U.K. and in the EU. You know, it's ten dollars a gallon right now in Spain roughly, um, you know, and everyone is up, up in arms because it's the average is $5 a gallon in the U S Yeah, and it was probably two fifty um, this, a, a year during COVID a gallon. Yeah. Remember a gallon's a lot of liters. It's like three point, it's almost four liters in many places, unless you're uh, like where I grew up in New Jersey. Um, if you didn't have a car, your dating life in the teen years would be zero unless you had a friend yeah. who had a car um, because you, everybody lived too far away. You know, you would have to date the girl across the street because everybody else was miles away. Yeah. And Americans love to have distance between them and their own space. And they're willing to put up with the commutes and things. And I don't, having not had commutes for a number of years now, I don't think I could ever go back to that. Would New York have cars then? So I mean, cause I, I see New York like London. You, I mean, every time you go, so it's ever, city, ever to get so, right in the city, cars are less. Yeah. You, you, there's plenty of cars, but really, people don't need them, and and for the most part, don't have them except if they have a weekend house and things like that, and they pull their car yeah. out of the garage and they load it up and drive out um, yeah. to the island or out to you know the Hamptons on the island or up to the you know Berkshires or the mountains and so yeah. forth. So, um, but. It's uh, I think in the American culture, at some point, having a car was being able to own a car meant you arrived 
you know, you'd made yeah. it to a certain economic uh, threshold and, and it was an outward way to show your success, much like people here anywhere, right? Because you can buy a really expensive car and it does the same thing an inexpensive car does, but people like to show their success and that's fine. Um, obviously there's a market for it. Um, and I think that's, that has always been a big part of the American psyche, if you will. And then of course we had Ford and General Motors and, you know, you had your allegiance to your brand and my dad only bought Buicks, you know, and things like that. And uh, it just became a thing. Um, yeah. And you think that's changed? Not really. No. I think that as we talk about moving to, well, I think what's changed is that um, we don't drive cars anymore. We drive SUVs. Yeah. The number of cars is probably a fraction of what the SUV sales are. And when you start seeing, and then the large SUVs that are so popular in the States, because someone has two kids, they now need a car with three rows of seats and yeah. uh, they can pull a small house behind them if they need to. <laughs> I mean, and then, I ride my bike a lot. And when you, these things bear down on you, it can be a little frightening because they're, they're massive and their fuel mileage is terrible as you might imagine. So it's a funny problem because, um, you know, it's going to be very hard to electrify those types of cars. They're doing it obviously, but they're such overbuilt, overweight, oversized. Um, Do you think it's like, because it's a frontierman's mentality in the States still? Yeah. um, That's totally true. You know, uh, having just spent time in Dallas this past year uh, where I actually went to graduate school, but going back after a few, many years, um, if you don't have a truck in your driveway. Yeah. And you, so my brother-in-law lives in this lovely uh, suburban enclave and everybody has a, a, a garage with a big parking pad and outside of every garage is a big pickup truck. And the reason it's outside is because the garages we're all designed not to take a pickup truck, a car, but pickup trucks, a four by four, they're too tall. So they all have to sit outside because they're too high. They, the garage doors are cut too low. So it's almost unheard of to walk by and not see a house that doesn't have a truck. And what do they use the trucks for? Because you, know, you see it in town in London. You know, the Chelsea, Chelsea, Chelsea tractors, they're four by four. Well, you're never going to drive four by four Chelsea tracks in London. I mean, it, yeah, yes, if you want no. to hit the countryside, so but you don't the, do that. Everyone says, well, like, you know, I like to get off road and do stuff, but no one actually does. You don't take a $60,000 truck. The tires cost hundreds of dollars a piece to repair if it breaks, you know, if it gets all flat. They don't go off road. They get dusty, maybe. But most people who work on a farm aren't driving those kinds of vehicles. They're driving a beat up truck that just grinds along at 10 miles an hour. They don't need to scale a mountainside with it. Um, yeah. So it is what you said. It's that sort of mentality of the wild west and frontiersmanship. And with this truck, I can do anything. And you'll have people tell you like, yeah, that truck is so much torque and da da da. I can pull a, a 3000 pound, whatever. And I can carry 17 sheets of plywood. And you're like, have you ever needed 17 sheets of plywood except in a hurricane? I mean, that's not the point. <laughs> it's the bragging rights that it confers, right? It's instead of zero to 60, it's your hauling capacity and whatnot. So um, and my brother's truck, brother-in-law's truck is so tall. It's a four by four that's raised up higher to have bigger, even bigger wheels. I can't see over the hood. 
standing in by the tire. I can barely see over the hood. It's that high. And I'm like five, nine. It's just, I, and he's rational for having this, uh, this huge monster, you know, so. Uh, he's, he does work in uh, a field where sometimes he's asked to like carry some tools and things, but the reality is I've never seen him put a tool in a truck and, you know, go on site. Um, and you could do that with a, you know, Volkswagen Beetle if you needed to. This is what men drive kind of thing. It's fine. I mean, you know, I made the mistake recently. I was visiting my family in New Jersey and my brother pulled up in his new red pickup, which to me from out inside the house looked like a Toyota Tacoma, which is a very nice pickup truck. So when he came in, I was like, oh, did you get a new truck? He's like, yeah, I had it a little while. I'm like, it's a nice one. Do you, I, I, it's a Tacoma Toyota Tacoma, right? And he off came this whole, he let loose with a whole bunch of explicatives and said, who would drive some piece of dark dirt, you know, <laughs> Japanese thing. It's a GMC. What are you, an idiot? You know, um, I clearly was a liberal who'd come from the West Coast and don't even know my my trucks, you know, kind of problem. So it is a thing. So A male thing. Presumably. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, sure. so, so do females drive these big monsters as well? I mean, they tend to drive more of the SUVs, um, which are just enclosed trucks, right? Yeah. But they'll have these Escalades. You know, like the thing the president gets driven around in, the Escalades? Yeah, yeah yes. you'll see those. And Land Rovers, uh, Range Rovers, whatever they are called now. Um, you know, and these, these are massive vehicles. Oh, yeah. They weigh multiple tons, right? They, they can crush an economy car if they hit one. Um, yeah. so yeah, but that's the mommy wagon, you know, um, the mommy wagon, mi yeah. mini wa minivans are no, that kind of passe because these things feel stronger and sturdier. And I think because you are sitting a little higher up, you have the perception that you have better view of the landscape. The problem is they don't steer and drive as well. So being able to see what you can't steer away from <laughs> Well, what you can't see because it's so far ahead of you. But, uh, yeah. So. Okay. So, so that, uh, that's, that's interesting to touch on the American psyche. Let's say, uh, um, do you, do you notice any similar traits in, in the British male then, or, or things that you've noticed around sort of what male bragging rights, I suppose? Uh, so well, I will say, like, one thing that's consistent with people that are in their, you know, say mid 20s to mid 30s is tattoos. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, facial hair, wearing a beard yeah. is still a big thing uh, in both places for certain age groups. And then the other one is the well, we would call them a ball cap, but nobody plays baseball here. But you know, the the build cap, golf cap, whatever that you wear turned around. That's, yeah. that's very much a, a consistent thing um, across uh, all groups. Those things come to mind right away on the on that level. Um, well, the baseball cap is definitely. Um, an import from the States, isn't it? Because my, my son wears one, you know, he's a yep. big skateboarder and he has it back to front, you know, and, um, you know, I, very early on, I remember, you know, when we first got the, the Simpsons and he was going to put out the uh, the garbage and go, going to the garage or whatever, you know, no, 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 no. We'll, we'll stop that straight away. You know, it's, yeah. it's a dustbin, Dom. It's rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. The dustbin. Other similarities, hmm. Not so similarities, but sort of, you know, the things that are important to men here, as, as you say, is by bragging rights in terms of, you know. Yeah, uh, so I think, you know, sports still tend to be 
Yeah. Really central to male existence, male life, um, camaraderie. Here it's mostly around football um, versus American football. Um, yeah. But we have football and basketball and baseball. And so there's something for everybody and hockey. Yeah, that's a huge thing here. Some of the sports are obviously different in the UK. Um, you know, we don't have cricket really. I mean, you see it every once in a while in, in certain cities, but it's pretty rare to see a cricket match. And yeah. I don't think any American would sit still long enough to figure out what was really going on because it's not baseball. So, um, well, but yeah, well, I think well, sports again, are, are defense camp, they, So I said, I'm going to cricket tonight. A 2020 game um, in cricket is shorter than ba- baseball. So, you know, mm-hmm. it, and, and, and certainly we've, we've imported the must-be result at the end of the evening. You know, the, yeah. there was a stage, you say, you know, play Come a game tomorrow. in cricket five days and there'd be no result. And people said, how can it possibly be true? There's no, well, we've now moved to like any American sport that has to be a winner and by definition a loser. Yeah, so well, that's got cricket now, and that is. I don't know if that's a uniquely American thing, but boy, winning and losing is a very important part of American male psyche. Yeah, you want to be a winner, and I'm gonna be a bold and adventurous, of course. Um, and the way they get over because if, if you don't say there's got to be a winner, they've got to be a loser, well, then you play so many matches, don't you? So, like, you know, if you think about the season in baseball or in, right. in basketball, I mean. It goes on forever, for days, doesn't it? You know, so you know, yes, there's a match every day, but the following day, it doesn't matter whether you won or lost. You know? No, it's a new one every time. Yeah, yeah. yeah so so uh, college was, sports are really big too in the US. Yeah, Julian always says that. Yeah. So and 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 so who are the people going? I mean, and and is it sort of well that's what's really nice of the college or a lot of alumni will buy box seats and uh, they travel um, specifically for these games and relive their college days. Um, okay. When my son went to WSU, which is out in um, Eastern Washington, uh, in South of below Spokane, actually, in a very dry, arid part, it's the, it's sort of the agricultural college, if you would, um, yeah. Wayne State. They actually built in a giant addition onto the stadium because they were able to sell luxury box seats units to the alumni who fly in on their private planes because there's no airport nearby. This is a dinky little uh, city. So they fly in and on their private planes and they spend the weekend, go to the game and then fly home. And they actually have enough people coming from, you know, alumni coming from all over the state and outside of the state to support that same is true in Penn state. Um, and some of these other big, universities that have well-known like Notre Dame be one yeah. that probably people had heard of in the UK. Um, yeah. So it is a, it's big business. It really is. And the universities, um, well, the sports programs benefit the most. I don't think that a lot of that money goes back to the over to the education or the departments in the other departments. I think it stays within the sporting groups, yeah. but big part of Nash of the pride of being in that university because they have a well-known team. Yeah, that's quite, it's very different here. I mean, um, even on the things we've compared fast, like funding, the, the alumni expected to fund the schools. Well, that doesn't happen a lot here at all. You know, I mean, people do go to university, but with one or two exceptions, maybe Oxford, Cambridge, you know, thereafter, you, you've, you're something you leave behind and have not a lot to do with, dare I say. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. 
it's almost sort of, I mean, we all know people, right. Where like their high school days were their best days. And I think that college thing, uh, that uh, the universities have capitalized on that, um, mm. nostalgia of getting, and then that makes alumni, you know, this is such a great school and I'm going to donate money and I'm going to spend money at the campus. And, you know, so they found a way to monetize it, I guess, as, as good capitalists should. So. That's good capitalists So I'm very conscious we're coming to almost the end of our, our hour. So trying to sort of to, to wrap it up in terms of, let, let's think about something that you would like to adopt or to have known sooner from the British culture that you've discovered. Well, I think quiz night is the most fun thing we do but those don't really happen in the states like oh, oh right i see a big big opportunity there then absolutely because it basically is a great way to just get people to come back yeah. and um you know the competition is fun and uh, just sometimes just oh, and what's your specialist subject uh if mary's with me there's almost no subject that we can't cover because she knows all the British queen related royalty questions, including like the third cousin of the landed gentry of the county, whatever. She knows all about movie stars and fashion and things like that. And I can kind of handle the, the science and the more technical things. So. Okay. Yeah. It's amazing how much your, your head is filled with trivia. In fact, I just, I just learned, uh, here's a great trivia thing that you should know for quiz night. Okay, cool. So you know the uh, song, You're So Vain? Yes. Who is the backing vocals? Who is the backing vocals? I thought you were going to ask the who is it written about? Um, you know, that's the easy one. She's already, uh, Carly Simon's already kind of said, yeah. I have Mark. no idea. I have no idea. Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger. And when you listen to it, the next time you listen to it, if you listen carefully, you will hear young Mick Jagger's voice. You will hear how he sang back. He's in there. It's clearly not just sort of, it's him, not like 10 other backing singers. He's in there. It's very interesting. I just learned this the other day. So so, um, in the same vein, um, this is something that Stephen Fry shared on on Twitter uh, a couple of weeks ago, which I didn't know. We'll see whether you know about. You you know, you've you've driven lots of cars, hired lots of cars. Do you yeah. know how the car tells you which side the petrol can t- uh, tanks on? I just learned this. Yeah, it's I amazing. Must have seen this. It, isn't that the most amazing? Anyway, is me sixty nine, driven course all my life. I yep. see if I says, "Hey, there's a little little arrow that tells you." Yes. <laughs> so every time I look at a car now, I'm, I think I can't believe that can't be true. And sure enough, every car I've looked at has a little arrow. Yes, when I saw that. I had the same reaction as I, I'm pretty sure millions of people did because you've always yeah. seen that thing, but never. I've never even seen it. So there, there we are. So on, on that bit of useless but interesting fact, we, we will close. Grant, okay. thank you very much for being at our special oh, guest for the invite. on, 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 on American that. Journey. Back to that start, on to that day.